0: Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting
1: a verse-by-verse study through Ephesians, and in the previous message I was in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, the second part of verse 4, when Paul said that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And I was explaining in the previous message that this has to do with the love of God, not a display of our love towards Him. It has to do with the love that He has for us and that we are without blame because He has forgiven us of all of our sins. He does not hold our sins against us anymore and that we are holy because He has made us holy because of what he has done for us, not because of what we think we might be able to do for him. And I was explaining that this is a different point of view from the majority of what you will hear in the Christian world. In general, within the majority of the Christian world, it is proclaimed that your holiness depends on you and that you are to get your flesh under control Don't do that which is evil. Do that which is good because you love God. And when you eventually get enough sin out of your life, then you can be declared to be holy. In general, this is the message that you will get from the Christian world. And what I am saying is different. It just is. I am declaring that you are holy because of what he has done for you. That this has to do with his love for you and that you are without blame because of what he has already accomplished when it comes to the issue of sin. Now, some people will agree with me to an extent. They will say things like, well, positionally, positionally, I suppose that's true. It's not that they will deny what I just said. What happens is that people will then negate it or they will reject it by saying other things that contradict those truths. So it's not that people don't necessarily agree with this. What tends to be the problem are all of the other things that they believe that contradict this reality. They will say things like, well, positionally, I suppose that's true, but practically, no, that's definitely not true. So we have got to repent and obey and get right with God and become holy To live a life, of course, that we will never be able to live, but we are to get as close to it as we can. Which means that God is going to be disgusted with you at first, and then he's going to continually be disgusted with you and ashamed of you. And the more you try, the more you will be reminded of how much he doesn't like you, especially if you're going to be honest about your progress when it comes to your pursuit of getting your flesh under control. So this is what I was explaining in the previous message. Moving forward into verse five, Ephesians chapter one, verse five, he says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. This is a follow up from verse four. And I explained at the beginning of verse 4 in the previous messages that the idea of him choosing us has to do with him defining the covenant that we can agree to if we want to. That's how he chose us. He did not choose us on an individual basis. He chose a collective, a group of people He's speaking out to a group of people when he presents the gospel. The gospel goes out into the entire world, and that tends to be a difference between what I present when it comes to the scriptures and who our God is and what others will present. Others will say that this is referring to the individual, and I say that this is referring to the group, that this has to do with the group, in this case, the born-again believers, the children of God as a whole. And the way that we were chosen was by him defining the gospel. Saying this is the kind of relationship that he is willing to have. Are you willing to have a relationship with him on that basis according to that definition? If you are, then you will have an individual salvation experience of becoming a child of God. But this is a mutual decision. It is a mutual decision in the sense that God makes his choice about the kind of person that he's willing to have in his life, and you get to make a choice concerning whether or not you want to know him and have a personal, interactive relationship with him throughout all eternity. But moving forward into verse 5, we have the word predestined, and I'm using the New King James translation, the New King James version, the updated edition, and it says predestined. Predestined is normally interpreted as destiny. This is the idea or the philosophical belief that there is a higher power who has determined all things that will ever take place within this God's universe, that nothing happens outside of his decision that it is to happen And I, of course, have a whole lot of issues when it comes to that kind of a belief to include the sin and the evil in the world. I don't believe that God has predestined, predetermined that there is to be all of this evil. There absolutely will be all of this evil and suffering. I don't think he's a God who originates that. He provided people, his creation, with an opportunity to decide Are they going to engage in good or are they going to engage in evil? And there are a lot of important reasons as to why he would do that. All of this, of course, is taking place within the boundaries of this planet. But even so, he is not the author of the evil. He is the person who gave us the ability to choose so that we would be able to choose if we wanted to know him or not, So that he only gets people in his life who genuinely want to be in his life. So this predestination idea does have a long and glorious history within philosophy and within theology. And in general, what people are thinking is that there is a God or higher power or a collection of gods who have predetermined all things and we are just observing their decisions playing out that we don't have anything to do with anything. And this philosophical, theological perspective has its roots in paganism, in pagan Greek philosophy. It, of course, existed before then, but it was then that it was officially codified in the discussions of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle when it came to the topic of God. And what they decided was that there was something called destiny. And this destiny has been embraced by the church ever since the founding of the church. It's been a struggle all the way back to who were referred to as the early church fathers moving forward into Augustine. And then Calvin picked up everything from Augustine and presented that to the Protestant world. Augustine was for the Catholic world, Calvin was for the Protestant world, and there were some competitors, but they were, in general, they were trying to offset what was being described from the point of view of destiny. And the competing points of view that people were presenting mainly had the idea of the opposite, or what would be the opposing view, the opposite of this destiny. But there is another way to understand this, and that is that we have a God who is an active participant in our lives, that he makes decisions. Some of these decisions were made long ago. And in that sense, from our point of view, those decisions could define predestination in the sense of destiny in small ways in some abstract ways. For example, in this case, yes, we were predestined, but we were predestined as a group of people that there was a certain kind of person that he wanted in his life, and so he defined the gospel, he defined salvation long ago, knowing that only a certain kind of person would be willing to embrace the gospel. That is how he predetermined Who would be saved? Not as an individual, but who would be saved in the sense of the kind of person who would respond. So there are some things that are predetermined, but not all things are predetermined. And the only way that this could be possible is if you have a living God. You have an active participant in our lives. The other gods are gods of stone, in effect. Their relational skills are similar to a rock. But there are many people who really want to believe in destiny. That is an important word and an important concept to a lot of people in many different parts of the world. It's just that they wrap it up into different kinds of packages. They present this philosophical idea in different contexts. Things like karma, for example, is another example of destiny, in a sense. There are some variations of this. But it is a form of the belief in destiny. Now, when I was explaining verse 4, the beginning of verse 4, I said that there are many different reasons why people will want to believe in destiny, in this idea of destiny as the governing force and every molecule in the existence of everything. There are many reasons why people will want to embrace the idea of destiny. One of the reasons why is because you don't have to be responsible for anything. You don't have to be responsible for your own life or what you do for the choices that you make because it is the decision of God or the gods or whatever. The decision of destiny, the power of the force or whatever that may be. Whatever it is, it takes responsibility. We are not really responsible. And this is quite convenient for a lot of people who either do not want to take personal responsibility for their own lives and their own being, or it may be that they are in life circumstances such that there really isn't anything they can do anyway. Not so much, or they cannot seem to find something that they can do in order to make changes in who they are or changes in their life. And so they will call upon destiny. They call upon destiny, hoping that some powerful force or God of some kind, something divine, will eventually do something for them instead of them doing something for themselves. There is this hope, there is this prayer, there is this faith that some divine essence of some kind will do something for them. And again, this could just be an expression of laziness, or it could be a lack of opportunities, Or it could be a lack of understanding of the opportunities that that person does personally have. But regardless of this, most people in the world default to this. This tends to be the default faith that most people will embrace. The idea of destiny. Now, a big part of this is the desire to be special. The desire to be unique. The desire for the divine presence, a divine presence of some kind, to recognize you and to do something in your life because you exist, just because of your existence, because you are. This is a desire that a lot of people have. They have this desire to be somebody to be important, to be confirmed or acknowledged or recognized by some divine presence just because you exist, not because you believe or have faith in truth, but because you exist, not because you accomplish anything, but that things are going to be given to you, presented to you because you exist. Now, of course, this is a form of pride. There are many different forms of pride, but this is a form of pride that keeps people from embracing the gospel because you have to acknowledge that you are not worthy of anything in order to receive his grace and mercy. But those who demand or expect something just because of their existence Well, they're going to wait for a long time or they're going to experience things by accident. But there definitely is not going to be any intervention by God because that is not how he relates to us. He relates to us on the basis of his grace and mercy. But those who declare their value and their identity just according to the fact that they exist. Well, that's just not compatible with the gospel. And this is a form of pride. Pride can show up in many different ways. It can show up in the sense of religious pride. As an example, there are many people who will say that they are better than somebody else. They don't sin as much as somebody else does. And so as a result, they expect that God will acknowledge them and see them and declare them to be somebody of importance because they don't sin like other people do. Now, it could be that that person is a very boring person and just simply isn't tempted by any sins. Maybe that's the case. But there still will be, no matter what that is, it's still going to be an expression of religious pride. And religious pride is opposed to the gospel. You want to compare yourself with somebody? Compare yourself with yourself, not with somebody else. Because if you don't, you will never be able to be honest with God. How can you receive his forgiveness when you will not acknowledge the depth of your sin? Religious pride is incompatible with the gospel because at its roots, you are making an excuse for sin, you are downplaying sin, or you may just be ignoring it altogether because you are comparing yourself, you're busy comparing yourself with other people's sins to declare that theirs is of such magnitude that yours is of no significance whatsoever. But it is. But again, this is not the only form of pride. There is also the kind of pride that can result from a person overcoming some serious struggles in their lives. Maybe they do overcome a personal sin. Maybe they do overcome great struggles and challenges and difficulties such that they find that they were one person who was effectively a nobody before. And now they have become someone of value. They become someone of significance and of importance because of what they have accomplished. Well, there's a new form of Pride That can be developed from that. And this in and of itself is not necessarily a bad pride. You know, the other people who declared that they are important, that they are somebody just because of their self-existence are deceiving themselves because they really are a nobody. But for those who achieve greatness in some way by overcoming the struggles that they have personally in their lives, they can be proud of their accomplishments. They can be proud of what they have done. And this is not a bad thing. You should be proud of your successes and the ways that you have been able to overcome your failures. But this can be an obstacle when having a relationship with God Because when we relate to our God on the basis of what we do, it's easy to fall into the trap of assuming that God owes us something, that our relationship with him is based on what we do again, based on what we do, and if he does not reward us adequately right away, then in a sense, he is in our debt. He owes us, in effect. These are some of the traps that a person can fall in easily when they grow in that form of pride that is not necessarily evil, but it can become an obstacle because you can bring that in to the way that you relate to your God. You're not going to be somebody before God because of what you do or what you don't do. You're still going to be a nobody on that basis. If you're ever going to be anybody, it again is only going to be because of what he has done. And through salvation, he has done it all. And for those of us who are willing to be honest with him, true with him, and recognize that we have no hope outside of his grace and mercy, we can be saved. He can give us the indwelling presence of his spirit to make us into a new creation, to make us spiritually alive, to make us into a child of God. And that's what he's talking about in verse 5, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, when it says, having predestined us to adoption as sons. That's what that means. He's talking about salvation, but he's using a different way to describe Salvation. Now again, this us is the collective. It is not individuals. It's not as though he predetermined that you would be one of his sons and I would be one of his sons. But you know the other guy over there? He predetermined before the foundation of the world. It was destiny that he decided that no matter what, that person will never, ever be one of his sons. Well, one of that person decides to repent. What if they decide to embrace the gospel? What if they really want to know their God? These destiny people, these people who believe in destiny, they would say, no, that would be outside of the boundaries of the destiny of God. We can't allow that. This us can only be referring to the collective group of people who decided to embrace the gospel. That is who was predestined, the kind of person. And the idea of adoption, to be adopted as a child of God, declares that this was a choice of God, that it was not destiny. You know, when you have a child, you never know what you're going to get. There are many different ways that people can relate to the world that they are a part of, many different personalities. And whatever you get may feel like destiny in a big way. But when it comes to adoption, this is a decision based on the kind of child, the kind of person who you see in your life, who you see who can be a part of your life if you want them to be a part of your life. And so God makes a decision. He makes a choice. And because of the gospel the new covenant, you have to make a choice as well. You have to make a choice to trust in and believe in the truth that he has revealed to you. And so this adoption is not the result of destiny. It is the result of decision. And this adoption is a covenant between your God and you, And between you and your God, that you are now going to be one of his children eternally. And he did this through covenant, through a covenant that he defined. If you keep reading in verse five, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, this is by Jesus Christ to himself, which means by the Savior, by the Messiah, by the covenant that he brought into effect because he died for your sins, because he rose from the dead to present you with the Holy Spirit who will make you spiritually alive, all according to the good pleasure of his will, in the sense, first of all, because of course he wanted to, he desires to do this, but not just that. But the new covenant is defined as a will, but as a will in the sense of the description of an inheritance that you have received as a result of his death by Jesus Christ, by the death of Jesus, you have forgiveness by the death of Jesus, a will went into effect because no will goes into effect until after the one who made it dies. And when it went into effect, there would then be an inheritance that would be given. And part of this inheritance that he predetermined that people would receive if they would embrace the gospel would be adoption as a child of God. And when you are adopted as a child of God, you then have an identity You are then somebody. Before then, you were a nobody. But now you are a somebody. You are a child of God who has been adopted by him. And I will continue into verse 6 in the next program.